Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Nine Decide podcast, where we chat with super amazing and inspirational people who pounded the pavement before and after their nine to fives to get their side hustles off the ground. After listening to the interviews with these amazing guests, you'll walk away with a refreshed pep in your step and a newfound motivation to make your side hustle a reality. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 20. It's the last episode of Season 1. Crazy. For those of you listening, thank you so much for sticking through the whole season or listening to whatever episodes you did. I so appreciate you guys. I hope you got something out of some of the episodes you listened to or were inspired by some of these stories like I was, you know, listening to these people who I've talked to and hearing their stories about how they've built their businesses and their side hustles or inspiring to me. So I hope some of that has kind of come through in the interviews. And I'd love to hear from any of you if you have feedback, what you want to hear, what kind of interviews are interesting, what you don't like, any of that. So definitely email me. You can email me at alexandra at the 9 com, and let me know your thoughts because I'm already working on season two and would love to know what you guys would want to hear about. And so for my season finale guest, her name is Heather McDowell, and she is the former CEO and founder of Tickle Water, which is a beverage company for children. And I have not had anybody on this season whose side hustle is a beverage company or a beverage company for children. And I think it's it's such an interesting journey to hear her story just about what she went through to get this launched from idea, conception, to getting the beverage created, packaging, on shelves. I mean, there's so much that goes into that. And she's a mom as well. And so, you know, all this time she's doing that while launching this business, Tickle Water, and then taking it kind of, you know, to the public and getting it on shelves in stores. And so it's pretty incredible for me to hear all the details because I do think it's a huge uphill battle, the beverage industry, just getting anything in store. And nobody gave her kind of a roadmap or how to figure it out. And so along the way, she just figured stuff out herself and kind of met people that connected her with other people. And I think her story is pretty inspirational and also can be, you know, even if you're not launching a beverage company, there's a lot that can be learned there. And she even has a fun tidbit about how she got on Shark Tank and was on there and all that stuff. I won't give it away because she'll talk about it. But She's super cool, powerhouse, amazing, phenomenal, phenomenal person, very, very talented. So without further ado, this is my interview with Heather McDowell. I just want to welcome Heather McDowell. Thank you so much for joining. I'm really excited to have you here and hear your story. (laughs) I've been kind of following you over the years, and I'm really excited to have you sort of share this whole kind of journey that you've been on with your business and how you started. So before we go into the backstory about who you are, and a little bit about what you've done in the past. Just quickly kind of give everybody who's listening the elevator pitch of your side hustle and whether it's a full-time career now or whether it's a side hustle or whether it's neither, whether it's <laughs> you're not doing anything with it now. But give us the elevator pitch. of Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Alexandra, for having me on. I'm like honored to be interviewed by you and sort of reflect on, gosh, the last like 10 years of my life. Well, let's see it. So I guess it's been about 
eight and a half years ago, I had this aha moment where I decided to start a kid-friendly sparkling water, which is called Tickle Water. And it started as a side hustle. It started as an idea that I never really thought was going to come to fruition, but it very quickly did. And it was initially a side hustle. And then it grew into a full-time job for about six and a half years. And then I sold the company and now I'm doing neither. So it's no longer directly a part of my life, but it definitely changed me. So hopefully one day it'll be out there again, but that's a story we can get to as we proceed in the interview. Yeah. I think that's so cool. I love this story and your story. Cause I actually think it's kind of come full circle. There's a lot of people cause you did start as a side hustle. It was a full-time career and now it's kind of moved on to a different phase. Let's walk back and tell us a little bit about who you are, kind of your back, you know, your history of what your work history was, where you're from. Give us a little history of what you kind of did before Tickle Water. Yeah. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I moved to New York City when I was 25 years old. And that was after studying college in California. And I studied Spanish and fine arts. And in my studies, studying Spanish, I went to South America and I went to um, Spain and I had lived in New Zealand for a bit. I like love to travel. And after I graduated, I, I knew I wanted to live in a big city. After living in Spain for a bit, I realized like I want to be in, New- in America, but in a big city. So that's when I moved to New York. You know, I moved there really not knowing anybody, but just loving the big city and figuring like I'll figure it out. And uh, I started out doing some random jobs with Diageo Liquor and did a bunch of marketing events for them and worked really in the food and wine business for the first couple of years living in New York City. And then I ended up getting a gig with a gentleman that is an avid car collector and car dealer. And he put on a car show in Central Park. And I helped him run the whole show and raise sponsorship and do advertising. And I brought in liquor sponsors. And it was a phenomenal three-day event. I worked on it for about a year. And one of the sponsors that I brought into that event was called Antiquarum. It's actually still around. It's an auction house for timepieces. And I ran their bid department. I brought them as a, in as a sponsor because there's a big overlap between men who collect watches, men who collect cars. I mean, I guess women too, but I would say we were like 95% males at that time. And Antiquorum decided to interview me after the car show and see if I wanted to come work at the auction house. And they offered me a position running the bid department. And so I moved over there and worked there for nearly 10 years. And I loved it. It was a high-paced, fast-paced, high-energy environment. Just I loved being around the luxury goods. I was doing the auctions in Hong Kong, Geneva, and New York. So I loved the international aspect to the job. I guess about seven years into that career, I got married and I got pregnant. And I went on maternity leave and went down to just working the auctions, essentially working part-time at auction house. And it was the exciting time. So I wasn't doing the day-to-day, answering the phone calls, helping around the office. It was just doing the auctions and leading up to the auctions. So I loved it, but I had a lot of downtime. You know, the busier I am, it's like an object in motion stays in motion, an object at rest stays at rest. So I just kind of always need to be in motion. And that's when I, I don't know, I was kind of bored. And I was like looking for something else rather than just a nine to five. And I didn't want to go back to nine to five now that I had Jager in my life. Jagger's now nine and a half, but my son and gosh, at this time, he was like two years old and I was loving staying home with him. But I also knew that I wasn't like a full-time mom. So I was really looking for like, what's the next chapter for me? 
I'm not saying it came about quickly. It was sort of like one of those things where you just kind of hope that one day you're going to have an epiphany or something. And it kind of happened like that. I mean, the real story of like how I had the idea was once I had Jager, I I will say my world kind of revolved around children. And I started thinking about, but I've always loved like luxury goods. So at one point I thought, well, maybe I should do a fashion line for kids, but boy focused because I felt like there was really, really cute high-end girls clothes, but not really cute high-end boys clothes. Did you go down that path? Did you like dabble in that at all and try that out or no? No, I mean, I went and looked at fabrics. I did a bunch of research. I talked to a couple um, fashion designers, but the more I looked into it, the more I realized it wasn't really a business I wanted to be in. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you feel like you have an kind of an entrepreneurial ship spirit or were you just looking for something? Would you have potentially gone back part-time to another company that really, I don't know, fulfilled that need for you to be busy all the time? Or were you really, after you had your son kind of being like, I really want something of my own. Was that important to you? That was important to me, but I would never have called myself an entrepreneur. Like I never saw that in myself. I didn't go to business school. I never really thought of myself as starting a company. I I knew nothing about building a business plan. So no, but I've always been very creative I've always been a go-getter, very organized and very detail-oriented. And one of those people that's like able to figure things out, like a lot of like street smarts, you know, like I would just can figure it out, like and get, be resourceful. So I would find information. So I figured I could do something on my own, but that wasn't really what I set out to do initially. And you were just looking for something because you needed more. And since you had a kid, were you like, I really want to do something that has to do with kids? Or were you kind of just like throwing ideas all over the place being like, what would be something that, you know, interesting to me? Or did you really want to be kid focused? No, I was throwing ideas all over. I mean, I was thinking fashion. I was thinking at that time, blogs were just coming out. So my sister and I actually started a blog and then we realized it's exhausting and it's just so much work. And I just felt like it was saturated sort of the way podcasts are. So I threw a bunch of ideas out there and, you know, I have to give credit to my husband. He, he was like, Heather, why don't you go start a company and do something? He's like, don't go work for someone else. And that had never occurred to me until he sort of put it into my, my lap as like, why couldn't you do that? And he is an entrepreneur. So it probably comes more naturally to him. To me, it was very daunting. But he just was like, start a company. It wasn't like there was an idea there yet. So he says that to you. I, and right. then what? And you're like, okay, great. Now I feel like I could be an entrepreneur. Somebody told me I could. So now all I need yeah. is the idea. I had all kinds of ideas. I had a diaper bag idea where I would make a diaper bag out of all of the child baby's old clothes. So you save the baby clothes, which every mom like loves the first little onesies that they get. Uh-huh. But yeah, I actually no, did cool. use that idea because I'm like, you know what? I want, I really wanted that idea to work. So I made a giant quilt. Well, I had it made for me. I don't quilt. You're a really good source. Okay. So tell us about the idea that came about for Tickle Water, how you arrived at that idea as your business. Okay. So I drink water. I drink a lot of sparkling water. Always love sparkling water. So Jager's around two and a half years old. And I usually would drink like a Perrier or Pellegrino and whatever bottle it was in, it was shinier and cooler than his little sippy cup. So he would always be reaching for my like sparkly bottle of water. So one day he really wanted, he was grabbing, grabbing, grabbing. So I said, okay, you can have a little bit, but it's going to tickle your tongue. And I poured some sparkling water into his sippy cup and he took his first sip of carbonation and he was like, and he just laughed and he giggled and the sensation of the bubbles on his tongue, just like he loved it. And he drank more, he finished the whole cup. And that was it. I mean, I didn't think anything of it other than he liked it. And the next morning or next day, I guess, 
he's pointing at the fridge and he says, tickle water, tickle water. And he wanted more tickle water. And I was like, oh, how cute. So that became like our household name for sparkling water. And his friends would come over and he'd say, mommy, tickle water. And his friends would say, tickle water too. And it was just like our goofy name. Fast forward, we're at Thanksgiving dinner that same year. And I'm back in Denver with all of my family. There's 25 of us or 15 of us, whatever, sitting around table. And my sister-in-law is sitting next to me. And I have a glass of sparkling water with a lime in it and ice. And Jager is sitting next to me on the other side. And he points to my water and he says, mommy, I want tickle water. And my sister-in-law kind of rolls her eyes. And I was like, what's tickle water? And I was like, oh, that's just our silly name for sparkling water because Jager loves it. It tickles his tongue. And she goes, well, actually, that's a really good name. My kids love sparkling water. And she's like, you should market that. So, you know, that was Thanksgiving. Christmas happens. Now January 1st rolls around and it's a new year. And, you know, the pressure of like, it's a new year, new me. And I'm like, what? I have to do something. So I immediately was like researching kids sparkling water on Google. Like nothing popped up that was kid focused. And I'm like, why are we giving our kids plain boring water from the water fountain? They don't like it. They're bored with it. They want soda. They want sugary juice. They want chocolate milk and all the stuff that's loaded with calories and sugar. And we have an obesity epidemic going on with our children. I'm like, why don't we make water fun for kids? And so I'm going to do this. So just a quick question, because I've watched a few shows and we'll talk about Shark Tank, but like knowing how competitive, like the food and beverage businesses, were you like, I'll just do this on my own? Like what were the immediate next step after you're like, I'm going to do this. Was it like, I'm going to research everything. I'm going to try to make it myself. Talk to me about what the next steps were after that. I mean, I did a ton of research. So I just started like reading about beverages and reading about water and reading about packaging. I went to like grocery stores and I just looked on every shelf and I went to different levels of like low end grocery stores, high end grocery stores, little markets. I mean, I've always been really perceptive to that because I worked in food and beverage for a long time and I love to walk around the city and check out little cafes. And I'd always see like cafes have like different products in each cafe. I started to pay attention to that. And I knew that if I went into this, I I had to have a package that would stand out from all the other beverages, like the Coca-Colas and the Pepsis and Nestle's of the world. Because of course you want somebody going back to buy the product, but the idea is it's got to stand out because they're never going to buy it the first time if they don't see it. So, and then hopefully they see it, they try it and they love it. And then they continue to rebuy it and then they share it with their friends and then those friends buy it and it snowballs. But the first step, obviously beyond the research was looking for a package that was unique. And I signed up for a three-day food and beverage conference. And I just literally, I went to like a three-day school and it was like beverage university. It was put on by a magazine called BevNet. And you could go right now, BevNet.com. They have an online magazine. They also have like a publication and it's for everybody in the beverage industry, whether you have a protein drink or a juice drink or water or anything in between. So this is before you even, it wasn't like you're in your kitchen and you mix up like this mix and you're like, great, I have this. Now I want to market it. You first did all the research and then you went to basically this university. Is that something you read? Like, are those the steps that you'd recommend other people to do? Is that how people go about it? Or do they first try to like craft their own concoction and then take it out themselves? Or is there- Well, a lot of people do that, but like, let's say you- you make killer brownies at home and everybody says, oh my gosh, you make the best brownies. You've got to produce these and like sell them in Whole Foods. Right. Then that person probably takes them to a farmer's market and like goes that route. But a beverage, you have to produce it, like mass produce it. I would have to produce like a beverage at a co-packer. 
But I did the beverage university really just to see if this was something that I wanted to invest my money and my time and move forward with. And I'm like, it's a three-day expense. It was like $1,200. I went to Chicago and I'm like, if I don't want to do it, all I've lost is a weekend and I learned something and 1200 bucks, but I probably had fun anyway. So I went and they had booths and different representatives from the freight industry, from packaging, from flavor houses, from warehousing, like every part of the industry that you need to be familiar with if you're going to go down that road. And so you were able to network and ask questions and they kind of went through it, like literally step-by-step step, like, this is what you need to do first, second, third, fourth. So after that conference, I was like, I just got more and more excited. I'm like, I love this industry. I want to do this. So the next step was writing a business plan to find out how much is this going to cost me and how much money do I need to raise, if anything. And that was step number two. Yeah. That's like a big step. Was everybody that at the conference in the same starting position as you? Or are people in all different phases of their product? Trying to remember. I think some people were in phases further along, but some were just like me. Like, okay, I have this idea. I want to produce it. Next step. Okay. Most people like near the beginning. Got it. So then you come back, you need to write a business plan, which is next because you need to figure out how to get money into it because you do have to produce it. Yeah. All right. So how does that work? Capital intensive. Beverage is not inexpensive. So I wrote the business plan. We did a three-year plan and I found the package. Uh, The package was essential. Just knowing like what... Did I want it to go in a bottle? Did I want it to go in a can? And the thing is, because this is a carbonated product, you're really limited with what package it could go in. So, and because it was kid friendly. So I couldn't put it in a glass bottle because kids can't take glass to school. They don't, you want glass on the playground. You don't want glass at the pool or school. Because the <laughs> pool, school, where are they going? So, and plastic, if you have a screw top plastic bottle, the carbonation leaks out of the top within like three months, but an aluminum can will hold. So your shelf life is really short. So you have to reproduce and you lose all that product. If it doesn't sell, the longer the shelf life, the better. So at any point when you're hearing these things, are you like, "Mm, this seems really hard. (laughs) It seems difficult. There seems like there's a lot of obstacles, which I'm just like voicing how I would feel. I'd be like, "Mm, this. Maybe I'll think of tickle water and do something different with, or were you like, no, that's okay. I'm not at all deterred. I I mean, I think I thought, okay, there's an obstacle, but we're going to get over it. The other people produce, so we'll find a way. I was very much in this gung-ho, like we're going to find a way, at least at this point. So I found that, yeah, I found the package and then the design. And that was my favorite part. I mean, I could have spent six years just on the design, but you know, the guy that I brought in to help with production, he really gave me good advice. He's like, you need to let your consumer be the person that dictates how you're going to make changes to your package. You just need to decide. He's like, you can tweak and edit and change this and change that and make this font bigger and this gold and that. He's like, you just got to get it on the shelf and see what works and let your consumers tell you this doesn't work. And then you go back and change it. Right. So anyway, we worked with a really great design firm in New York City and they came up with the four labels. I went at the same time I was going to a flavor house coming up with the flavors that we wanted. This is where it was like fun. This was like so... bootleg. I'm having a great time. I mean, I could see that all being a fun step. And did you know, like, how do people know how to get to a flavor house? Is that all stuff you just Google or is this stuff you learned when you went to that kind of boot camp course where they were like, they give you resources to reach out to? Like, how would somebody know or find those people? Or are you just randomly Googling them? 
Well, Google Help, but BevNet Magazine had a list of like flavor houses. And they, if you open that magazine, there's advertisers. The advertisers are the flavor houses. The advertisers are the shipping warehouses, all the providers and vendors you would need in that field. And I think at that first conference that I went to, there was a booth for a flavor house and I probably contacted them. They all do business, you know, they compete, but then they share. And then I was like, I need to know what kids like the best because their palates are different than mine. And, you know, you're, you have to always ask the question, okay, how many other strawberry sparkling waters are out there. How many other orange sparkling? There's tons of lemon and lime, right? So we want to do something different. So we stand out. So I was set on doing kiwi strawberry. We tried kiwi strawberry from all the flavors. It tasted gross. Like it just didn't taste good. So we actually did a taste test at a playground in New York. And oh, that's so up, cool. Yeah, I set up a picnic table and I brought a couple of friends that helped me. And we had all these little Dixie cups set up with different flavors. And we had the kids like mark their favorite. And it was more of just like a research so personal. I, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah. Any, How fun though. <laughs> it was fun, fun. And they all pretty much liked it. I and mean, there were a couple of kids that literally spit out the water, like right in front of me. Really? Like they hated it so much that they just spit it out. I was going to ask, I was like, did you find that most kids like the sparkling water or there was a good portion of the kids that just don't like sparkling water at all? Yeah. I would say like maybe 65. 35, like 65% like sparkling water and they pretty much would have liked any flavor. And the ones that didn't wouldn't like any flavor. They just don't like bubbles. Right. Okay. So So after you do this, then you're like, great. You've done the packaging, you've done the tasting, you know, the flavors, then it's to get it on the shelves is the next shelf. So then we found a co-packer that was willing to pack with our clear plastic can, which we launched in this unique package to the United States. It was clear, uh, BET plastic was really important to me because I wanted, you know, it's a kid-friendly drink that we were promoting as 100% natural flavors, no preservatives, no sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial color. So I wanted to see that it was pure, clear water. It was sealed with an aluminum lid, so it had a one-year shelf life. But nobody had ever produced with this can in America. So these can lines, the co-packers were really reluctant, but we found one in New Jersey who was willing to work with us and we did a small production run. That was in November of that same year that I had like the aha moments. Exactly one one year from that Thanksgiving dinner, I had the product in a case and ready. Oh, wow. It was so, okay. So it only took you a full year. I mean, obviously you're very busy in that year, but took you a full year to get it in that case. Now you're doing all this, but you didn't have like a purchase order or guarantee. It's not like you went to Whole Foods first, gave them a test of the water and they're like, great, we'll take X number of pallets or whatever they do. You just wanted to get it packaged. What did you do after well, the package? Well, we did the small production run, which we produced enough so that we could sell to enough stores in New York to get us going. But the way it works is Whole Foods isn't going to buy a pallet of anything until they've seen the product and tasted it in Whole Foods is like really difficult to get into. So that was like way down the road. And in fact, we never got into Whole Foods. So we got into a lot of other phenomenal grocery stores, but not Whole Foods, but they're, they're very challenging. But first production run, we took like, I hired a sales guy who'd been in beverage before he'd done this in New York for years and years. And he took cases of our water. We started, we started with like the delis, all the independent grocery stores where you don't need any authorizations. You don't have to pay for slotting fees. And so he would just go to all the little bodegas. A lot of you with him giving the pitch or you just kind of trained him on. I trained him. Yeah. Okay. So the sales guys went out. I got a van. I got a tickle water van and wrapped the whole thing. And they went around New York and just started to like knock out store after store after store. And then we started to go for the bigger stores and then get reorders. And then at the same time, we had to market the, uh, the product because you can't just get it in a store and hope that somebody walks in there and says, Oh, what's that? 
I've never seen that before. I want to try that. Right. You just don't know about it. People are so conditioned and so habitual that they go back for what they've been buying forever. I hired a marketing person down the road. At the beginning, it was all me that just started to get me any kind of event in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and later Florida as we started to grow. So we were doing soul cycle promotions and any kid event, street fairs. What do you think makes the biggest dent? Like in terms of getting, obviously you started to get into small bodegas and get your product out. That was just in New York. Is that right? Yeah. Mostly. And then what do you think made the biggest dent in terms of spending ad dollars or was it events? Was it sponsorships? What do you think got the most exposure for you in terms of getting people to adopt Um, the brand? Social media, but Instagram wasn't quite as big as it is now. I mean, we're going back, what, eight years? I think really word of mouth and getting it in the hands of kids at like school events. There were a lot of just random, I don't know, all kinds of school carnivals and stuff. And I would contact the school and say, hey, we want to donate water. Um, We would do races like bike races out in the Hamptons. We did, oh, I know, actually, I forgot. We sponsored in the Hamptons three summers in a row, the free ride. So the free ride is a little electric vehicle that would take people from main town, East Hampton to the beach. And we wrapped three of their cars and it would just go up and down the road all summer long. And they would give out tickle water for free to anybody that wanted it, that would ride to the beach. And that was a great promotion for us. So it was really just getting it in the hands of people that either had kids or even though it was kid friendly, it's really for everybody. Do you feel like if, um, cause you said it was eight years ago, I know it was a while ago, which is crazy to think that like where social media was eight years ago. Do you feel like if you were doing it now with how impactful and how much you can leverage social media to like build brands and like influence, do you feel like you would have been able to like, you would have been able to get more exposure for it? Do you feel like that would have made a bigger difference? Yeah. I mean, I think if I would go back, I probably could have taken a lot of the money that I spent spreading it all over and just giving it to one massive influencer. And I probably would have had the same effect. Like Mm -hmm. if it was like a Kim Kardashian who has kids and give her her money probably would have asked for $2 million just to like have her children drinking tickle water probably would have been a slam dunk for us. They probably would have launched us nationally. So let's talk about where the bodega route, you're doing events. And then what were you doing after that? You were getting it out. Your goal was obviously to get it. Yeah. More distribution. I mean, definitely distribution, getting it in more stores, bigger stores, growing outside of the tri-state area, which we did expand distribution to Florida. And we were in Pennsylvania as well, but we were really on the East coast. And then we were trying to do the West coast. We got authorization with a big distributor on the West. And then we were just about to launch in Canada. We got authorization from 1500 stores. That's between two different grocery companies up there. They wanted the product. It would have been in both. It was like the equivalent of Safeways and Safeway and Albertsons basically up there. Loblaws and I forget the other stores name now, but they wrote a purchase order for all their stores, which was incredible. But we would have needed, I mean, at least another million dollars in capital to produce because first of all, you have to produce for that many stores. We would have had to change all the labels because they require bilingual labels in Canada, French and English. So an entirely new production run, set up warehousing up there, set up a sales team up there, marketing team up there. All our marketing materials would have had to be in French and English. So, you know, it was just so capital intensive. We never were able to launch in Canada, but the goal 
really was distribution and getting our margins. You know, the more you produce and, you know, your volume goes up, then your margins get better because your price comes down. So we were always working on that, but it's, you know, water is a pennies game because, you know, it's just water and we just had a drop of natural flavoring in it and the package. So I'm just giving you random numbers, but these aren't exact. Let's say it costs you 45 cents to produce and you sell it for 90 cents to the distributor and then they sell it for $1.20 to the wholesaler. And then the wholesaler sells it to the consumer for like $2. And then a mom is like, wait a minute, I'm going to buy a little eight ounce thing of water for $2 for my kid. They're like, I'm going to buy a giant bottle of Pellegrino and I'll just pour a little in. So we were running into pricing issue. Like how much do parents really want to spend for their kid? Well, what we realized was how we could expand our sales is really making this a multi-use product. So we were like, this can't be marketed just for kids. It's like buy it for the kids, but mommy can have a calorie-free mixer for her cocktails. So she can have vodka and tickle water. We actually started doing a lot of events with vodka or whatever liquor and you mix it with tickle water. And now you have like a vodka soda, but it has a little bit of flavor and it was fun. And it's the perfect size mixer. This is only eight ounces. And we got it into some nightclubs. And that's a smart idea. I mean, and at this point, are you, you're, you're running all this. You're looking at the numbers. You're figuring out the strategy basically all by yourself, right? I mean, essentially you've got- well, Yeah, I'm by myself. I had a team. So by the end of Tickle Water, I was a team of 10. Uh, a couple of those people were part-time, but I had a full-time, like three full-time sales guys, full-time CFO, production guy who was, he was like a full-time consultant, but I had a really good team and they were all people that had been in beverage before. Yeah, yeah. it was like, you built like a full-blown business. And, and when I was following you, I I was like, oh my God, like I wanted to hear the story because it's so cool. Like how you started it with this idea and then you built this whole business and you figured out a business that I think is so difficult. I mean, I don't know if you'd be willing to talk about your, your delve into the shark tank world, but I feel like I watch that. I know a lot of people watch it. And like the one industry that they always talk about is like the food and beverage industry because it's so, so difficult. Let's just talk about what happened after that. Like you kept going, when, how many years is this that you've been running the business? Seven years start to finish that from like the start of building the company and running it was, yeah, like six and a half years. My final hurrah. So we had, I had gone out to really try to raise money. I mean, we needed a lot more capital if we were going to grow to Canada, for example, and the West Coast. Just to give you a perspective, like Essential Water, I mean, they had put in a hundred million dollars to grow Essential. They weren't even... I mean, that was like near the beginning, but everybody hopes, okay, if I put in a hundred million, I'm going to be bought for a billion right. sort of thing. You know, they're thinking huge numbers, but beverage requires like a lot of capital. So we were out fundraising and, and I was unsuccessful in raising outside capital. So at this point I had funded the whole company myself and I had made a decision that we were not putting any more capital in myself and we were going to shut down production and essentially dissolve the company. But I was going to give it one last hurrah, which was going on Shark Tank. So Shark Tank has the benefit of possibly getting money, you're getting expertise from entrepreneurs that know how to run businesses. And also, of course, huge, huge marketing exposure. So I applied and I got in to season 11, which was we recorded June of 2019. So just 10 months before COVID hit the world. And it was it was so exciting. I could not believe that I got like accepted. It was quite a process of applications. So I present um, to the sharks and they had one guest shark on who um, is the founder of Kind Snack. 
Jacks, Daniel Lubetsky. I think I can disclose this. I mean, he was a guest shark on season 2019. And of course, he's in the food and beverage industry, built a billion dollar company with Kind Snacks. And he made an investment in my company on the recording section of Shark Tank. And he gave me a million dollars for 51% of the company. And I was like, absolutely. And 100%. So, you know, at the end, they put you on the green screen and they ask you all the dramatic questions like, do you realize you just gave up control of your company? And I'm like, to Daniel Lubetsky, absolutely. I want him to have control of my company. Like, 100%. Yes, I do. Thank you. I'm like, I think he's more <laughs> adept at doing this than I am. That's so, so cool. and the cast and crew from Shark Tank could not have been cooler. They were like cheering when I came off. They're like, we never see anybody get a million dollars. That's like so extraordinary. That's amazing. And Aww. the cool thing is Daniel's family, he has four kids. They live in New York. They like sparkling water. So I was ecstatic. And fast forward three months later, which was the end of summer of 2019, August 2019, I had a call with Einstein's team and they pulled out of the deal. And that was it. And it was like a very brief call. I knew it was happening. I just knew (sighs) nothing to do with CEO, nothing to do with Mr. Lebetsky. I just think this is kind of the nature of Shark Tank. Uh, to be honest, right. a lot of is for television and, you know, the episode actually didn't even air. And they say it has nothing to do with the fact that the investment didn't go through. It's just they pick and choose whatever segment they think is best for television. And you said they film a lot of extra episodes, too. They right? do. Don't. They film a lot of extra. And they do say that a lot of is it that they go back and then kind of do their due diligence to sort of make an impulsive decision for the excitement of TV and then kind of yes. th- rethink it and do more analysis on the numbers and stuff. And then yeah. that happens a lot that they change their mind. Yeah, they change their mind or they change the terms of the deal. Like I heard a story. I don't, this is just hearsay. So yeah. don't quote me yeah. that somebody got an investment from Barbara Corcoran and it was supposed to be like a hundred thousand dollars. And after the show recorded, it was like, okay, you actually get like 10 hours of my time, which is worth a hundred thousand dollars. Reality TV, it's so, it is not a lot of stuff like that. I mean, I've done a yeah. couple of reality smoke shows. And it's smoke and mirrors. It's not always what you think. You're like, this is going to be amazing. And then you're like, oh, there are some caveats here that make it less amazing. Yeah. But still, it's such a flattering compliment to be plucked out and asked to come on the show, which I didn't realize. I thought you had just applied. And then even to get interest from somebody at that level, even if they I passed know. up, I mean, that's so huge. It must have been so exciting, though, where you, the deal passed. How, what did you feel like? Were you like, all right, this is it. Or are you like, okay, that's okay. We can figure something else out. No, I knew, I knew it was time. And it was like, it was sort of a sign from God, like, okay, it's time to shut it down. You know, you did your last run and it was the best final memory of Tickle Water, like being there with Jager and recording and like just the excitement of being on set at Sony Pictures and getting the investment and having it be a massive investment from a very prominent food and beverage guy. It was like such an honor. And the fact that they pulled out, I didn't really even think it of it as like a knock against our company. I just think it was more like, well, this is television and they're, you know, they're a billion dollar company. They're doing what's right for like their business. And it was actually really good closure for me. And at that point I decided, okay, I'm going to dissolve the company. There'll be something else in my future. It was bittersweet. It was very bittersweet. I mean, Tickle Water was my life for like seven years and I was working most of those years, you know, 60 hours a week, 70 hours a week. Sometimes, I mean, it was like, I was answering emails all hours.
hours of the night. I was up early. I was on weekends doing events or doing production runs. I was doing trade shows all over the US all the time just to get the product out there. I had to be at every trade show because that's where Whole Foods or you know Circle K or any of the convenience stores would come and or grocery stores would come and try to find products that would fit their selection. Wow. That's a long run and a lot of commitment for someone who's also like a young mom who's raising you know, yeah. a small kid. That's a lot of work. So when you decided to dissolve the company, it's not really the end. So tell what is the next chapter for Tickle Water? So we stopped production and I let my team go, which was definitely the hardest part of the whole job. You know, I loved my team and just having their support. That was certainly the highlight of running a company and being an entrepreneur. But one year passed and I got an email from a guy that, you know, the saying that they say, never burn a bridge. <laughs> this is so true. Um, there was a gentleman that I had worked with via email. He, he really wanted to do a big project with me at some point. He is an incubator for small brands, food and beverage. And the timing wasn't right. And the direction he wanted to go didn't fit with the direction we were going at that time. And that was maybe three years prior to dissolving the company. But we stayed in touch and I got an email from him in September of 2020, almost a year after I had dissolved the company. And he said, Hey, are you still producing tickle water? And I was like, no, I dissolved the company. And he's like, well, I want to buy you. And I'm like, well, there's no product on shelf. I don't even have a sample to give you. He's like, that's okay. I want to buy the the brand name, the IP, the, all of it, the, the logo, your entire IP and reproduce it. And I was like, are you serious? (laughs) I said, so make me an offer. And three months later, we were negotiating his offer and uh, we signed a deal in January of 2021, one year ago. And that is so cool. So Tickle Water got acquired. And it is like unbelievable that like I sold a company. I, I like still can't believe it. I pinched myself. That is so cool. Thing. I think that's such an amazing Aww. like full circle story. Like I love it. It's a company from the ground up, ran it, got on Shark Tank and then got the company acquired. And you still have a piece of it, right? Yeah. Well, I I have royalty. Well, in terms of the deal is I can't disclose, but there was a huge stock incentives and then royalty. Royalties. So the good thing is he is reproducing the product and hopefully we see it on shelf like this year. I actually just talked to him uh, a few weeks ago. So it looks like he'll be producing in the next few months. Does he take like brands like that? He's a small incubator, but his goal is to get them nationally. Yes. Like go big with them. Yes. And he brings in a lot of outside capital to grow all the brands together. Very cool. Yeah. Could not have worked out any better. I feel no. it's a dream come true. Cause I had also, I had gotten burnt out as much as I loved it. Then I loved tickle water and I loved my team and I loved the mission behind my product and I loved the product, but the actual business of beverage and dealing with like distribution and grocery and stocking and warehouse. It, it's agonizing. Yeah, I can't imagine. You just leave cash because, you know, everybody buys stuff on Amazon. You don't even realize, like you lose all of, the, if you sell a case for $10, I think I was pocketing like $1.50 of that $10. Wow. Because Amazon takes their fee and then the shipping fee and it's so heavy to ship water, you know. It's crazy. So looking back, I love your story. Came full circle. It's got like such a happy ending. And now you have like other side hustles, a bodybuilder. You're doing bodybuilding. Yeah. I feel like you can't sit still. So it's not no, like you got your company acquired and you're like, I'm going to sit back and just relax for a little bit. What are the two other side hustles you're kind of doing? Yeah, I'm definitely a person that can't sit still. And now I've been living in Arizona, which is far too sedentary for me. So I need to get back to where the hustle's happening. So bodybuilding, I mean, that's more of a hobby, but I do love to feel strong. I was a long distance cross country runner for years. 
years and then started lifting weights, I don't know, 10, eight, 10 years ago. And people kept saying, you should compete, you should compete. So my 40 year bucket list thing was, okay, I'll do one, one bodybuilding show. And I did pretty well. So I kind of got hooked and I'll be competing for like my third summer this, this summer. That's so cool. And you flip it's houses. Cool. Yeah. I've been renovating and flipping houses. So I've got three projects working. One was just completed in Arizona and I've got two going in Nashville, which is exciting. I feel like you're like naturally a business woman who has stuff going on all the time, like your own little projects. Do you see yourself wanting to start another company and running a company like you did with Tickle Water? Or do you like kind of just like the flipping houses, you're making money and doing stuff, but it's more of a side project. Do you want to have another company? Sometimes I think about it. I, I'm, I'm torn. We are planning, our family is moving to Nashville, Tennessee this summer. And there's a part of me that feels like maybe I'll start a business when I get there. But I am really loving the flipping houses and renovating. I love interior design. If I was ever going to go back to school, I would probably study interior design. So it's really fun. And that's happening in real estate right now. I just feel like it's kind of a slam dunk. So I'm going to stick with that for now. And maybe, maybe I'll start a little business in Nashville. So just in kind of closing, if people are listening to your story, obviously it's very unique and it's kind of doesn't happen every day, but what advice would you give people who are interested in starting a side hustle or kind of in a side hustle similar to what you're doing? Because I think it is unique, whether it's food and beverage or something along those lines, what would be some of your tips for people who are getting into that space? Whatever the side hustle is, just make sure it's something that you're really passionate about and excited about because that passion is going to keep you going. The days get really tough and the money gets really hard. And I think you got to love it. I think put really good people around you and put people that know a lot more than you do. You never want to be the smartest person in the room. So I only put people that had already been in beverage because I knew nothing about beverage. So I was like, the only people I'm hiring are people that know a lot more than I do. And, you know, never stop learning. Like you've really got to research and, and just ask questions. Do not be afraid to ask questions. I just feel like that leads to just learning and discovery. I mean, I didn't really think Tickle Water was going to become a full-blown company. I mean, at the very beginning, I think I thought it was going to be a little side hustle. But then once you get in it, you're like, oh gosh, I'm all in or this isn't happening. Yeah. Those are really good tips. People who do side hustles in general, like the people I'm talking to have kind of this knack and sort of uh, like a hustle to figure things out. And I think you're one of those people too, where it's like, you're just, you know, you're going to figure it out as you go, figuring, asking questions and finding the right people. Because I think what you navigated is especially difficult, that business area. Like if you were to go back and do it again, like if you went back, would you do it all over again? Again, or would you stay away from the beverage industry? Probably from what I've learned, I wouldn't do beverage again. I really wouldn't. You wouldn't. I mean, I loved Tickle Water. I loved what I did. I loved that it ended up being a success in the end. I probably wouldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, it is just so challenging. And there's only so much beverage space. Like when you look at, they call it shelf space and grocery stores are only going to pick like products that are flying off the shelf because they're limited to what can fit in that refrigerator case. Yeah. You know? No, I listened to your story. And then once you're like so invested in it, it's like, well, I've already come this far. Like I, yeah. can't, I can't stop now. No, exactly. Yeah. That's why, I mean, it's very impressive and it's such a cool ending to see it have been acquired and then get back yeah, on the shelves. So I can't exciting. wait to see it. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. So where can people, I mean, do you still promote your website? 
Do you send people to the site? Are there any social media places that you have people follow you? I just have my personal tickle water. When the other firm acquired it, they took over all of the social media accounts. And I think they're actually making some tweaks and rebuilding them. But if you wanted to see the product, I think if you go to Instagram or you can just Google tickle water or drink ticklewater.com to see what the product was, it should still be there. And for my personal account, it's, it's more of a journal of my life of like working out and my family and my son, but it's Heath three McD at G three McD is my handle. So it's H E A T H number three M C D. Okay, cool. And yeah. do you, would you do anything with your fitness? Cause your fitness is like, I mean, you're not just like working out. I know it's just a hobby, but you're actually competing now. Yeah. I'm part of a team, but I don't want to do coaching. I like, I don't really want to coach other people. I mean, I've had people come to me and ask for nutritional help and I'm happy to do that just for, you know, the kindness of my heart, but not as a business, not as a business. Okay. So the flipping houses, I feel like you have a lot going on and I'm waiting for the next kind of a follow-up interview of of what your next formal business will be, but thank you so much. I love your story and I, and I really appreciate you being on taking the time. 